Well, I hope that all is well with your soul. I hope it's not because it's just a sunny day out and because the uh, Buckeyes won 59 to zero yesterday. I mean, that helps. That makes, uh, I think, God shining down upon Ohio. I'm not certain. But uh, it goes way deeper than that, and I'm so glad it does. It, it's well with our souls because we can have a personal relationship with the living God, and uh, that is an incredible thing. Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, we're going to be taking a look at that passage today. In January of 2011, my son and I, uh, Joshua, went to Guatemala to do a setup trip, and we saw something that was absolutely amazing. It's hard to fathom what we saw. We saw people that had an opportunity to have a better life, a new view on life, and yet they chose to forfeit it for a garbage heap. Here's what I mean. We went to Guatemala to set up a trip for another team that would go and do a total village renovation in, in Guatemala. And as we were there, we told the, the directors there of World Help, our ministry partners, that we wanted to really embrace the culture that was there. And so as we went to embrace that culture, they were giving us exposure to what was happening in that place that we were working, that we would be working. And so they decided to take us to the village garbage heap for us to feed a meal for those that live in there. Now, please note that I didn't say around there or near there. These are people that live in the garbage. They live right there. And as we went in there, we saw how people had built houses and their, all the material possessions were the things that they found in the garbage heap. Now, there is a difference between our trash and their trash. Uh, believe it or not, it's all relative, but we actually throw away stuff that's usable. Now, you wouldn't think that because you threw it away. But in Guatemala, by the time it's thrown away, it needs to be thrown away. And this is the stuff, the broken down, filthy, stinking stuff that they built their houses with. Well, we went in to feed a meal to this community. So when we went in there, the people just kind of swarmed us with their broken glasses and their, their bowls and their cups and things to take in their food, all the things that they found in the, in the garbage heap. Now, the smell was overwhelming. It would have been overwhelming had not compassion overridden the, the need to get out of there. So we fed them that day, and it made an impact, I know, on my heart and on my son's heart. And so afterwards, we asked the director, our, our, our world help partner we said isn't there a way that you could do something for these people to give them a better life and we were surprised by the answer she told me she says steve we have we have an entire village of hope which she showed us later we have an entire village of hope that anybody that wants to leave the garbage heap they get their own house they get a place that they can cook their own food. They have sanitary conditions for the bathroom. And they have employment opportunities. She says, but the problem is people don't want to leave because this is all they've known. They had an opportunity to have a new lease on life, a better view on life. And yet they traded it 
for a garbage heap. Unbelievable. And yet, if we think about it, there's kind of a parallel and a parable of this to our life. There are so many people that are trading what is superior for what is inferior. They're trading the idea of a relationship with a living God because for them, God is just kind of out there to just be nestled within the comforts of the world and all the trappings that are around them. And they've kind of found safety in that because we fear change. What God wants of every one of us is he wants us to see a new perspective. He wants us to have the veil completely removed. There are some people that just view this world as mundane. It's going through the job, going to possibly church, just doing life. It's all just a ritual. And if we can start seeing life from God's veil, uh, from his perspective, the veil would be removed. And all of a sudden, we would see a colorful world in which God allows marriages to grow on on a deeper level. He allows relationships to be uh, fostered and grow in a deeper way within the body of Christ. And he allows us to have ambitions where we call out and cry to God. He doesn't want us to have the junk of this world, the garbage of this world. What he wants is for us to enjoy the prosperity that comes from us understanding his view of life. And that's what we're going to do in Mark 10. We're going to be looking at God's view on life. Let's pray that God would really do that in our hearts. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, your word is so awesome, but as we look at your word, that it would be a flashlight, it would be a bright light to our, our lives. I pray, Father, that we as believers would not trade uh, the most important things the most important relationship we can have just for a busy schedule, for a busy life. Lord, help us to be focused on the things that matter the most. Help us to have your view at all times. And when we have your view, it will change our outlook on so many things. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would do something beautiful in our midst so that we as a body of Christ would gather around your perspective and it would become internalized and would be our own. I pray that you would do that in a powerful way. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the book of Mark, actually Mark chapter 10, is all about the uh, understanding God's view. See, look, take a look at chapter 10, verse 1, and it sets the context. It says, he, talking about Christ, along with his disciples, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again and again, as, his, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, what's happening here? Jesus is now going from Galilee. He's going to go through an area called Perea, and he is headed down towards Jerusalem. We will see next week that he will be going into Jerusalem. But he is on his way to die on a cross to fulfill the, the plan of redemption. But now if I, was, uh, if I knew that my death was coming up and I, that was imminent, 
I think I would be consumed with that thought. But Jesus, as he's traveling along, does what he always does, and he uh, accommodates the people that are coming along, and they bring situations. And in Mark chapter 10, there's one situation after another that comes to Jesus' attention. And what we see here, in every one of these situations, there's a corrective nature in every one of them. That's kind of the common thread. He's correcting them. He's correcting them from how the world might look at things, how man might look at things, and he's trying to transition them to how God would view these things. Now, please understand, the people that were probably the most surprised by some of the things that Jesus said were his disciples, were the ones that had been following along for three years, and they're still not getting it all. And so Jesus is trying to change their perspective. He will change, he will give God's view concerning marriage, concerning children, concerning eternal life, concerning rewards and ambition. So we're going to start in chapter 10, verse 2, with what he had to say about marriage. Take a look at verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they were always trying to trap Christ, they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Now in this first situation that comes up, it is clear that the religious leaders simply want to trap Christ. That's all they want to do. They're not asking a question for the sake of getting information. They're asking a question so that they could try to trap him in something. And in that day and age, amongst the religious leaders, there was no more of a hot topic and debated issue such as marriage and divorce. And so they bring this topic up. Now, I think you should know that in that day, there were two rabbis that were considered the leading theologians in this area, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Both of these rabbis derived their arguments from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. We don't have time to look at that. You can jot it down and look at it later. But there's actually one phrase that they debate over that's in that passage, and the phrase was this. A man could divorce his wife if he finds something indecent about her. Now, the debate was around that phrase. Now, Halal was the liberal of the group. Halal interpret this that if for any and every reason a man could divorce his wife. If she didn't cook well, he could divorce her. If she wasn't uh, as comforting to him and wasn't as sexual as he wanted, he could divorce her. For any and every reason, he could divorce her. Now, Shammai was the conservative of the group. He said that this was referring to sexual sins worthy of death that would have nullified the marriage anyways. Now, no matter what, the religious leaders really weren't looking for an answer. They just wanted to trap Christ. Now, what's interesting is that they were expecting that he would side with one of them. And then they could trap him and say, you've gone against Moses. But Jesus doesn't go with Hillel. He doesn't go with Shammai. 
He actually source, uh, cites another source higher than Hillel and higher than Shammai. He actually cites God himself. And he, in a minute, is going to quote Genesis 2.24, talking about how God had created marriage, and he was the source of authority. He's going to give them God's view. But first, Jesus starts to dismantle their thinking by asking questions. That's what Jesus does. He says, what did Moses command you? And they answered, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, notice he asked, what did he command you? And so this was their answer. And so basically, what, he real, what they realize in this is that they say from this passage of Deuteronomy that Moses was an advocate for divorce as long as he did it in a legal way. As long as he wrote the certificate of divorce and did all the legal things that he was supposed to do, a man could divorce his wife. It was easy. Moses was an advocate. But then Jesus says something interesting. He basically says, no, Moses permitted you because of hardness of your heart. See, Moses was not an advocate for divorce. Moses merely acknowledged that it exists within the nation of Israel due to the hardness of their hearts. Another way of saying hardness of hearts is that you were self-centered. You're self-absorbed, and this is what you've done. You've developed an entire system of divorce, easy divorce, so that you could do what you want as men. Then he goes on in verse 6 to 9, six to nine and says, okay, here's the, I'm citing the authority. Look at what he, God says. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. Now, what was Jesus doing? He was teaching what God had to say. We could spend an entire message just on this passage, but let me give you the summary of what he's saying. Marriage is designed by God, period. He is the author of it. He said it is to be between a man and a woman. It is designed to be a permanent bond. When you go into it, it is a covenant. It is a permanent bond. This is Jesus' teaching going back and citing the Father in Genesis chapter 2. And it is also a, a thing of a new identity. You're no longer under your parents. You're no longer under their authority. When you come together, a husband now becomes the head of his wife. He be, they become a unit. They become a household. And that's how God says that you are to be. Now, Jesus goes a step beyond Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and adds something here. He adds this phrase, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's Jesus' words. That's not in Genesis. See, Jesus is saying, speaking the heart of God. He knows Malachi chapter 2 says that God hates divorce. And so he's letting them know what is the intention of God. The heart of God is that he doesn't like, he, he, he hates divorce. And he doesn't want that to happen. Now, please note that the disciples were absolutely taken back by this. 
They, they were so taken back that when they got Jesus off privately, they had to make sure that they heard correctly what they thought they heard. And so they asked him, take a look at verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Basically, Jesus says to his disciples, divorce is off limits. He says, I tell you this. I tell you. Now, Jesus is citing himself as the authority. Not Hillel, not Shammai, but himself because he is God in the flesh. Now, we know in a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, in the same context, Jesus adds this one phrase, unless there's marital unfaithfulness. That's the only exception that Jesus gives. And the word for marital unfaithfulness, the word for unfaithfulness is pornea, the root word for it. It's where we get our word pornography. And it means sexual sins. And it is a very broad term talking about sexual sins that occurred. There were many sexual sins that could occur in the Old Testament that would have resulted in the death penalty. Homosexuality, adultery, bestiality, incest. All these things would have resulted in death. And so therefore, marital unfaithfulness, if there's sins in these categories, then divorce is permitted. It's not commanded, but it's permitted. The only other place that we're taught anything in Scripture is, based, is Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 where he says if an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then the believing spouse may let him go. That's it. Now I know that this raises all kinds of questions about marriage and divorce. But here's the point. Here we have it. Man's viewpoint. Man's viewpoint had created a system in marriage that it was easy. It was self-centered. It was easy to divorce if they wanted to. But God's viewpoint, and this is what Jesus is trying to get at, God's viewpoint is that based on God's love, marriage is meant to last. I've heard couples say, I've, Christian couples say, we've fallen out of love. There's nothing really wrong. He hasn't cheated on me. I haven't cheated on him, but we've just fallen out of love. I find that amazing because we have one source of love, and that is God. God is our source of love. And if God is our source of love, I believe God is an ocean of love. And there is a, it can never be emptied. It can never be emptied. So somewhere along the line, we got cut off from his love, and we started doing things in our own human way. And what he is saying is that marriage, from God's view, is meant to last. Well, that situation probably was stirring in the minds of the disciples, and then they continue on, and, and something else happens. And then Jesus has the opportunity to teach about children, God's view of children. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them and laid his hands upon the children." 
Now, in the next situation, we see that parents were bringing their children to Jesus. That tells us that Jesus was an approachable individual. Peer parents wanted their kids to be around this person. There was a sense of what he of who he was, and they wanted him to to hold them. And so, what we have here is we. We, we have a society that celebrates their children. In this society, they value children as a treasure, just like we do. Remember a couple weeks ago when we had the dedication of our children? We did that because we value the children. We do things, we have a lot of resources and great leadership in our children's ministry. Why? Because we value children. Children are extremely important. Now, notice in this situation, the viewpoint that has to be challenged is the disciples. See, the disciples were the ones that had the wrong perspective. They got caught up in the idea of Jesus being popular and so many people wanted to see Jesus and to be with Jesus. And so they started screening. They were like the bodyguards for Jesus. No, you can't. Yeah, you can. And he, they were screening who could go with Jesus. And as soon as Jesus learned about it, Jesus said, the scripture says that he became indignant, meaning he was ticked off. He was actually very angry because this was a sinful thing. And Jesus then says, I'm going to use these children as an object lesson. I want you to know that unless you come and receive the kingdom like these children, you cannot enter in it. He says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We as adults often tell our kids to act like adults. Here Jesus tells the adults to act like kids, to have their kind of faith. Why? These children were coming to Christ with a complete abandonment and trust in him. They completely trusted him. They were vulnerable, they were dependent, they were helpless, and yet they came to Christ and they went to him in this manner. And what Jesus does is he says, okay, these children, just like that, I want to teach you about salvation. Unless each and every one of you come to me just like a child, completely vulnerable, completely dependent, completely trusting me, you can't have a part in the kingdom. You can't come in thinking you do what you want. No, no, you're dependent upon me. This is what salvation is. And when that happens, I will bless you. I will love you. I will adore you. Jesus challenges his disciples. So here we have it. In this instance, man's view, the disciples... They, the children were an inconvenience, but in God's view, you must come to me in the same manner as these children. Then we continue on in the passage in another situation. They're starting to walk towards Jerusalem again. And all of a sudden, a rich, young entrepreneur businessman runs up to Christ, kneels before him in apparent humility, and asks a question. Take a look at what he says in verse 17. 
And he was setting out, Jesus, on his journey, and a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, as this situation unfolds, it's apparent that this rich young guy not only wants to be successful in this life, he would like to lay claim to success in the next life. And so what he, he asks is a question that so many people in our world are asking today. He says, good teacher, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the phrase good teacher was not a common phrase amongst the older religious people. They would call somebody a rabbi. But this is a young guy. He has young terminology. This was the millennial of that day. And so he's approaching Jesus as kind of like the spiritual guru. And I'm going to come up to him and I want to find out what his answer is on this. Now, by the man's question, it's clear that his view of eternal life is something that he achieves by doing good, which is basically the majority view of this world. Do you know that? Every other belief system outside of Christianity is all built on what do I do to inherit eternal life. So Jesus challenges this man's faulty view of good by showing him that no one is good, no one is perfect, but God alone. And therefore, man needs to see himself in light of God's standard. So that's what Jesus is going to do. He wants this man to see himself not against the other guy because there's always someone worse than you and there's always someone better than you. And if we compare ourselves, we're always going to compare ourselves with that guy. So I'm better. I'm good. But Jesus wants him to compare himself against the standard of perfection. And so he takes him to the character of God in written form and he goes to the Ten Commandments. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Kept them all. Every single one of them. Now notice what Jesus does here. He quotes the bottom part of the Ten Commandments. The top part deal with our love for God. He doesn't quote that, but he's going to address it in a minute. But the bottom part deal with our human relationships with one another. And the, he states them, and as quickly as Jesus states them, he says, check, got that done, done that, okay. Again, this man's view was from the view of human achievement as to being good. And might I say that he thought himself better than he really was, which is also a problem that we have. We tend to think of ourselves as not as bad as that guy. But we're not comparing ourselves by the right measuring tool. From man's perspective, he may have been good. But from God's perspective, he was lacking. And so Jesus, with compassion and love in his eyes, says this in verse 21. And Jesus looked at him. Notice this. He loved him and said to him, you, want, you lack one, one thing. Go. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let me ask you something. What do the top commands of the Ten Commandments talk about? What is the summary of it? Could you not summarize it as basically love and honor God above all other things? Yeah. Love and honor God above everything else. And what was this man, what is the one thing that this man put beyond God, above God? His wealth. And so therefore, God says to him, Jesus says, if you really want to show your love for God, if you really want to understand what God desires, that you will love him and that you will put him beyond everything. So therefore, dealing with your issue, you need to go sell everything. Give all your proceeds to the poor and then come follow me. See, what Jesus wanted, total surrender. It's what he wants of every one of us. He wants total surrender. Kind of like a child running into the arms of Christ. I'm yours. Completely. Everything about me. My wealth, it's your wealth. My, my resources, it's yours. My time, it's yours. My house, it's yours. Everything is yours. Completely. Abandonment to God. So here we have it. Man's view, work your way to eternal life. But God's view, he says, you cannot earn eternal life. You must simply surrender yourself to me. Now, please notice that this rocked the world of the disciples. Take a look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying you can't buy your way into heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, children, they still had an infant mindset. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about through, the, through human achievement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's using hyperbole here. It's impossible for a camel to go through a little eye of a needle, and it is impossible for us to earn our way into God. And then he says in verse 27, he looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Obviously, Jesus wasn't just trying to change the rich young guy who ended up walking away dejected. He was trying to get a hold of the hearts of those that were closest to him. And he wanted them to see what this was all about, that you don't earn God's favor. And I wonder how many of us are just trying to earn, earn, earn God's favor in our life. Whether we realize it or not, we kind of have this built-in mechanism called our flesh that always wants to say, I got to be doing more. I got to be doing more. I got to be perfect. I got to be perfect. And God says, no, you can't be perfect. But when you are dependent upon me, something supernatural happens. I will take over and I will start. When you yield your life to me, I will flow in and through you. And then I will do something amazing in your life. That's called a life of dependency upon Christ. That's what he was trying to teach. Now, this topic 
brought all of a sudden the idea of rewards. This rich young ruler. He says, if you, Jesus said to him, if you go sell everything. And the, so naturally the disciples are thinking, well, we've done that. We've sold everything. What's in it for us? Okay, Jesus, let, let, let me know. What's in it for us? Help me understand that. Take a look at verse 28. Verse 28, he says, and Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. There's kind of a question implied there. What's in it for us? And Jesus says, yeah, I say to you, there is no one who, I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brother or sister or mother or father or children for my sake and for the gospel. He's acknowledging you've done that. I do know that. I see that. He says, but here's what you get. You get a hundredfold now in houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. He's talking about the relationships and the provision that God will make for you. But then he says something that they didn't expect. With persecution in this age, eternal life to come. Persecution? No, 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 no. We're going to Jerusalem. Now, see, in the disciples' mind, they're going to Jerusalem. They think it's time. It's time for Jesus to bring the kingdom. And, you know, guess what they're going to get? They're going to be, James and John in a minute are going to say, can I sit at the right and can I sit at the left? I mean, we're, these thrones are coming up, man. I want to be a part of this. And I want to be right, you know, right next to you, Jesus. And, and, and the disciples, they, they, wanted, they wanted thrones. They wanted robes. They wanted positions of authority. The wealth that comes with it. They wanted it all. Persecution? Are you kidding me? That's what I get in this life? And then he gives them a riddle. Many who are first will be last. And the last will be first. What are you talking about? And then in the next few verses, Jesus demonstrates that he would be the leader of this suffering. Look what he says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was setting the pace. And they were amazed. And those that followed the disciples were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was happening. Jesus is constantly pulling his disciples aside. You're not getting it yet. Okay, I'm going to tell you again. This is the third time he's going to tell them this. See, we are going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning Roman crucifixion. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, I'm sure they would like the idea of rise, but they couldn't get to that point. They're still stuck on their thrones what are you talking about? This is, be, this is perplexing to them. You see, here we have it. Man's view, namely the disciples, they have this idea of material reward in this life. But God's view says, no, no, my journey is for the redemption of mankind. It's for the souls of men. And my friends, what this tells us is what matters in this life. This, what matters in this life is not our possessions. 
It's not our positions of authority. It's not our accomplishments. It's not even our comfort. What matters in this life, what really matters when it's all said and done, is the souls of men that we influence in this life. And that's the message that Jesus is trying to get to his disciples. And that's the message he wants for us to know as well. That's what's important. They didn't get it. Because in the closing verses of this chapter, we see all of a sudden they walk along and they're starting to jockey for position and James and John come up to Jesus and Jesus says, oh, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, <laughs> we'd like to sit on the left and the right, you know, when the kingdom comes. Yeah, we know that you're going to kind of be doing the Hunter Games kind of revolution type of thing when we get into Jerusalem, okay? We know that's going to happen. and We, we just want to be the, the disciples. Do you hear what they said? Do you hear what they said? And they start arguing with each other about who's the greatest. And Jesus has to calm them down. He gathers them around. He says, oh, guys, 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 guys. You're getting this all wrong because you're looking at this from the wrong viewpoint. God's kingdom is not like the Gentile kingdom that you have grown accustomed to where one person lords over another person. No, in God's kingdom, the person that's going to be great is going to be your servant. And the person that's going to be the greatest, the greatest, will be a slave. What? And then Jesus gives himself as the example. He says, for even the Son of Man cannot be served, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They got to be scratching their heads as they're walking along the road as Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. I'm like, what is all this about? I don't understand. I'm so confused. And all of a sudden, there's this blind man that's yelling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, shut up. Be quiet. Leave him alone. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Shut up. Be quiet. Jesus, no, no, no. And then he asked the same question that he asked James and John. What, what do you want me to do for you? I, I, I want to see. That's it. I just want to see. And Jesus sees his faith. And he heals him. What a contrast. Disciples aspiring for greatness and the blind beggar simply wants to see. And when he's healed, he sees Jesus and the text tells us that he followed after Christ. What the rich man didn't do, the blind man did. And thus the riddle is solved. The first, being the disciples, will be last. And the last, the beggar, will be first. So here's my question. How do we apply this? The question is this, do we have God's view of life? 
My friends, we live in a world that will always inoculate us with the values of this world. It will always be self-centered. It will always say, you have to have more. You have to have a better job. You have to have more money. You have to have a better title. You have to have more, more, more. And it will constantly keep you evaluating your success as to whether or not you have these things and are achieving these things. But God says, no, there's a different view. Here's the view. The view is that you are completely surrendered and dependent upon me in every aspect of your life. And when you do this, here's what I want. I want you to run into my arms like a little child. I want you to be that rich man that surrenders everything they have to follow after me. I want you to be the disciple who is more concerned with the souls of men than your personal advancement in life. I want you to be like the blind man that cries out, that cries out, Jesus, son of David, help me. That's what I want. That's the view that God wants us to have. My friends, everything else is a garbage heap. Let's not forfeit the superior for that which is inferior. As we close out, let's evaluate our heart. Cry out to God. Hear my heart. Hear my heart.